back to Gen Z Speaks. We have a very interesting guest today, Josh McGinnis. Uh, I hope I got your last name right, man. Uh, Josh is a biotech startup founder and software engineer. He previously worked at Intuit, and now uh, he's starting his company, Every Man Bio, and also has a podcast, which has been really fascinating to listen to. Uh, Josh, welcome to the show, man. Appreciate you. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Let's let's dive right in. Let's let's dive right in. So um, I want to start with your personal background, since biotech is such uh, a wide field, right? And I feel like there. I don't know a lot of people in this specific field and because it's so, you know, detailed and nuanced, what motivated you or inspired you to be involved in that space? Well, ironically, I don't have a background at all in biology. Um, although I'm engineering fungus here in my home lab, I don't have any background in biology. In fact, my, my background's in computer science. And uh, I spent the last 15 years as a software engineer in a variety of different positions mostly working in what's called fintech, the financial world, dealing with big data and things like that. But as most people go through some different phases in life, you guys are a little bit younger than I am, but you will go through phases in life where you do something for a while and you realize, you know what, there's, there's so much more that I have to offer to the world. And, um, and so I was looking to do something new and different. And I also should mention that I had a, um, a very positive and life-changing psychedelic experience, which sort of prompted me to explore the world of biology and, and fungi in particular. And so about a year and a half ago, I decided to uh, go all in and teaching myself genetic engineering, synthetic biology, and uh, with a specialization on uh, fungal genetics. And, uh, and so I've been on this journey with, with um, Hopefully I'm going to be the first person in the world to genetically engineer fungus in a DIY home lab, um, which I'm happy to talk more about. So that's a, that's the journey that I've been on and uh, that's what I'm working on today. That's fascinating. Hey Josh, Jenish is gonna be asking a lot of questions about your psychedelic experience for sure. But before that, I want yeah. you to help us understand and obviously we have a basic understanding of biotechnology, but for the sake of the audience, uh, biotech has different types of, you know, subfields, like there's agricultural bio, biotech, there's, um, you know, biotech is being used in all sorts of uh, different arenas, basically, to help improve life. But for you, in your opinion, how do you define biotech and the space that you're working on? Um, how, how would you, you know, if you can just uh, help us understand the areas of research that you're currently working on? Yeah, well, so I'll give you the sort of layman's um answer to that question because again I, I don't have any biology degree in fact in the I've actually um, only picked it up in the last year and that's that's part of what I'm trying to show is we think about biology and biotech as these things that are that exist in these very super high-tech labs where people are wearing white lab coats and you have to have millions of dollars in this space age lab to do this work but in reality that's just not true I mean genetic engineering sounds like this space age futuristic thing. But the reality is I can pay a company um, 50 bucks to synthesize DNA and I can use uh, $15 in reagents to put exogenous DNA into E. coli within my home lab as an example. So part of the work I'm trying to do is to sort of break down these barriers, these institutional barriers, and also just these mental barriers that society has about who should and who can do genetic engineering and what are those limitations and boundaries. What is biotech? I mean, that's sort of a very broad, open-ended question, but I would describe it as 
it's a field of technology wherein you're working with living organisms. And so that's very different than computer science where we're entering code into a non-living machine and it's, it's an input output sort of machine. With living organisms, we're talking about the fundamentals of life. We're working with DNA and we're harboring and using these organisms which have evolved over millions of years to do certain things really, really well. We're harboring them to create food, to create medicine, to solve and heal our illnesses, to produce really valuable compounds. So I'd say biotech is really just a matter of, of you know, broadly speaking, harnessing nature to, to bring value to mankind and society and, and create businesses around that. My particular area of focus, because biotech is very broad and even within specific fields, there's experts in everything. Um, so it's really a field that where you're always being challenged and there's, you can never know everything. But um, I, because I have an affinity and my start with biology started with growing mushrooms, um, I decided to make my area of focus in fungi and uh, filamentous fungi. So like I have this Petri dish here that's growing, uh, growing a, a mushroom. Um, and it's a fungus is everywhere. It's in, it interconnects all plants. Like I can go up pretty much in my yard and capture all sorts of fungus that are living within the roots of the trees, even the grass. Um, it's in the air. If I just put a Petri dish out and take the lid off and leave it open for five minutes, stuff's going to land in it and grow. Um, I even have a, an organism that I cultured from my backyard that once I sequenced it, I found out that it's actually being used commercially to produce a heart statin for people that have high blood pressure. And this is just a, a fungus that I found in my backyard. So to me, that gets me really excited because we've only discovered a few, you know, just a few of the total fungal species that are estimated to be out there. And so if you think about, there's all these organisms around the world that have been evolving little by little over millions of years to be really good at producing, you know, what's called secondary metabolites. They're able to take the nutrients from their environment and for different biological reasons, they're able to produce new compounds. So a lot of what I'm doing is a lot of exploration. It's, it's going out into the environments, it's capturing fungus, it's identifying them, sequencing them, and studying them a little bit close, more closely to see like, hey, maybe this fungus has some genes that I can take advantage of. I can maybe take these genes out of this fungus that cause it to produce this medicine. And I can actually put it in something like yeast, which is really good at scaling up and growing lots of that compound in a, in a uh, lab type setting. So that's, uh, that's kind of my area. Yeah, it's very fascinating to me that, um, that you know, we've been using biotech or biological processes of microorganisms, right, for the last 6,000 years. And that has like helped us make so many food products, you know, bread, cheese, preserved dairy products. So to me, that is, is fascinating how biotech started off with such a basic fundamental principle, right, in, in, this, in the food product. Uh, area and that now it's expanded to significantly just fundamentally change life and you know whether it's for clean energy uh, or or you know reducing our environment or footprint or what you're doing it, it's fascinating how each field kind of is helping to improve life. Well, we truly do have a symbiotic relationship with fungi. I mean, just to use your example on uh, food, uh, think about alcohol. I mean, yeast is you know, designed to consume sugar, glucose, and excrete 
uh, alcohol. And we humans have taken advantage of that for a very long time. Um, in many cases, uh, I think, you know, beer and wine used to be the only things you could drink because there was no access to clean water. Uh, we use fungus to now, you know, you can go to a farmer's market and buy fresh mushrooms to eat, which are very healthy for you and a great protein alternative. But we also use them to grow um, antibiotics. I mean, almost all of our antibiotics come from some sort of fungi that we've discovered in nature that have natural antimicrobial properties to them. Hey, Josh, you mentioned um, that you pretty much hadn't uh, been in the field of biology since like the since your whole life except like the past year uh, and I found that really fascinating how, how did you start like how did you did you just like I'm just gonna study biology or did you know did you pick up a textbook or you know get some online courses or what, or what did you do yeah you know I wish I could tell you that it was clean cut part of a plan or a larger strategy but that's just not the way it shakes out and that's often the case with life we have plans but then life happens and so really what happened was I sort of I sort of got burnt out multiple times in my in my tech career you know I, I've been part of lots of startups most of them didn't make it but if you go through the journey of a tech startup it's quite um it takes a toll on you physically, mentally, it's very difficult. And then even in the corporate environment of the tech world today, there are lots of things that are happening culturally um, within corporate tech, which are just such a turnoff to me and make it very difficult to work to work in those environments. So I sort of reached this you know, cross, a crossroads in my life where I was like, what am I gonna do? I've invested my entire life in this one career and um, I, I got depressed. I really struggled with that. And that led me through just a series of events. I had this psychedelic trip and I came out of that with this incredible new perspective on life. And, a, a, and I simultaneously, I was following a couple of YouTubers and reading some things about you know, the cost of sequencing going down. You're, you know, you'll hear things, if, even if you're not in biology, I think most people have heard some things that are on the edge of kind of what's in the what's in the atmosphere about biotech like CRISPR people you, know, you may not be an expert on CRISPR but you've probably heard that word thrown around more recently um, and so I kept getting these signals from my environment that hey there's something here with genetic engineering I'm, I'm hearing more people talk about it I'm hearing how it's more approachable and it's it, it, you can learn it that maybe you could do it at home or in a, in a DIY lab so when I had the psychedelic trip, which came from mushrooms that I grew, um, I already had some connection to fungi, which is in the biology world. Growing mushrooms isn't the easiest thing. It's not like putting a seed in a plant and watering it. There, it's a little bit more complex to grow and culture fungus. And so I had that initial connection to biology with that. And then once I you know, had the psychedelic trip and I kind of realized, you know what, I, I need to, I can't go back to the way that I was before in the tech world. I really want to learn genetic engineering and I really want to take my passion for mushrooms to the next level. I just really went deep into, I'm going to learn everything I can about fungus. 
and I'm going to grow a bunch of mushrooms. That, that was the first thing I did was like, I, I, I talked to people all over the world. You can go to eBay, you can go to Amazon. You can also just network with people online in the mushroom growing community. And I gathered a whole bunch of different cultures of different kinds of mushrooms from all over the world and said, I'm just going to learn how to grow mushrooms. I'm just going to learn how to grow, you know, different mushrooms require different things. And so in the process of learning how to grow mushrooms, you actually learn about the organism itself. Then the next step from there was like, okay, I can grow mushrooms. That's great, but I don't want to become a professional mushroom grower. That's not what I want to do. I want to go to the science. I'm trying to get to the genetic engineering. So the next log logical step for me was to start getting into the DNA world. And so I found that there's this thing called DNA barcoding, where you can actually extract DNA from the fungus, sequence a specific area of its genome, and you can compare it with all the other known sequences in the National Genetic Database called GenBank, and you can identify fungus using DNA. And so I learned how to do that. And I learned how to do that from my home environment. And so that allowed me to get DNA. That taught me how I can do DNA extraction, get DNA out of fungus, and even get access to sequencing. And I can now do DNA barcoding for a less than $7 per, per species, which is, I don't think people think that of doing DNA work being so cheap and affordable. But, you know, in a couple of hours, I can do DNA extraction from fungus. I can send a mail it off to a lab and within a day or two, get a sequence back and, uh, and have access to that data and share it with the world. I can do it for less than $10. And um, that's pretty incredible. And so the next step after that was like, okay, I can get DNA out of fungus. Now, how do I get DNA in it? And that's a, that's the big thing that I'm working on now. And that's called genetic transformation. So that's how do I take genes from other organisms or other fungi, put it in, in an, a fungus or another organism and get it to express those genes? How do I do that? So, you know, it's a long story, but basically the idea was I started from the very beginning. I had an attachment with fungus from growing the mushrooms, from having the psychedelic experience that sort of grounded me and connected me to the nature aspect of it. And then because I've spent so many years in a, in a call it an intellectual field, computer science is anybody can type on a keyboard, but it's really a job of thinking. You're really thinking about architecture. You're thinking about design. You're thinking about um, how systems interact and operate with each other, efficiency. So I just took that same part of my brain, which was attuned to code, and I just made the connection to DNA. And when you get into genetic work, you realize there's actually a lot of similarities between writing software and writing DNA. Um, it's a different language, but all genes are encoded with a, a series of nucleotides. So you can code for genes. And there is a, a there are some basic tools, molecular biology tools that you can use to get exogenous DNA into the fungus. And once you realize what those are, all of these ideas that you have about how difficult it is or how expensive it is, they start to you start to go like, wow, this is this is really incredible. And why is why are they keeping this a secret? It almost feels like you know the information lives in these papers, academic papers which is sort of the, the currency for grad students. And then when you look at the field of bio, biotechnology and you look at, look at the startups who are starting biotech uh, companies, 
they're all PhDs by and large. They're all PhDs or at a minimum, they're, they're grad students. Um, but why is that? Why, why are all, why are all, there all these like barriers that are preventing the average person from getting access to the knowledge of how to do genetic engineering? Although I'm doing genetic engineering for fungus, actually the process is very similar, whether you wanna genetically modify um, humans or you wanna genetically modify plants, the same underlying tools and technologies are very similar and they're not that difficult. They just happen to be um, behind a paywall in a paper. And from a societal standpoint, um, most of the money is being given to people who follow a particular path. They go to grad school, they graduate with their PhD, and that opens up opportunities for them. But I don't think we want to live in a world when sequencing and genetic engineering, the cost and the tools are accessible to someone like me who has a home lab in my home, in my kitchen. I don't think that we want to have only this very tiny portion of the population have access to that technology and making decisions for everybody else. I think at a minimum, we need to make sure that we're making this technology understood and accessible to everybody, regardless of their academic background, regardless of whatever background they come from. Uh, we need to make at least make the information available to them so that they can advocate for the right policies, for the right way of using it. Um, and so that's that's part of what my mission here of, of starting Everyman Bio is all about. It's really about, let me do a deep exploration into something like genetic engineering, which sounds space agey and very difficult to do. Let me actually change people's perceptions and show them that it's not as difficult as you think, it's not as expensive as you think, but it's incredibly powerful. And what if we're actually able to open this technology up to the general public? What sorts of amazing things is your neighbor going to come up with? Obviously, there are ethical and there's um, there's risk associated with that, um, but we should be having that conversation. We should be defining and, and debating what those limits are, and uh, we sh we should do be doing everything we can to democratize the information so at least people understand how it works. So that they again, so they can advocate for themselves in this process. Right, right, Josh. There's there's a lot to break down there, and I definitely want to get into genomics and uh, its applications. But uh, just to you know, kind of backtrack a little bit, you mentioned your the psychedelic experience. It was kind of like a catalyst in your life, kind of you know changed you. Um, could you elaborate on what motivated you to do the psychedelic uh, psychedelics? And um, you know, obviously you don't have to talk about it because it's, I know it's a, a lot personal to a lot of people. But kind of your motivations to do psychedelics uh, in the first place. Well, I talk about this on my podcast. I interview scientists and other people from the from the psychedelic communities, and I'm quite open about it. I, I you know, I don't mind talking about it at all. Um, frankly, well, I should say I come from the South. I came from a you know the the South. I came from Texas. I grew up there, and I came out to LA when I was you know 18, 19 years old. So inside of me, I have this person that is very like straight and narrow. I don't really have a lot of experience with doing drugs. So if you were to ask me at different points in my life what I thought about psychedelics, I would have been very turned off by it because I would have put it in the classification of, I don't do drugs. I stay away from those things. But as life happens, you evolve and you get new experiences. And um, 
Yeah, when I was kind of going through an internal crisis, I think everybody deals with depression at different points in their lives. I reached a point in my depression where nothing was working. I was in therapy for years, and then suddenly, right around uh, when COVID started to happen, my therapist decided to move out of state. So I lost my I lost my number one confidant person that I used to lean on, and, and you know when I was going through a tough time. So I lost my therapist, who I developed a bond with over many years. I had an identity crisis because I didn't want to go back to doing what I was doing for my career. And then, you know, I'm, I'm older than you guys, so it's much more difficult when you're 15 years into your career to kind of go, well, I'm going to start over. That's really hard to do. I, I didn't want to go to school and start, you know, start completely from scratch. And I had no clear pathway forward. And I was in this sort of philosophical quandary of it's very difficult to be in a place where you feel like you're stuck. You're stuck in this really negative space. You cannot envision any way out of it. And so, you know, I've tried antidepressants. They don't really work for me. Um, they also kind of depress your ability to feel anything, including happiness. Um, so I tried everything. I was in a state of sort of desperation. But I had been reading about the positive studies that were coming about from people who had psychedelic experiences. And, um, and so I had reached a point to where I was like, I was desperate to try anything that might help me. And so my wife, who had actually tried them before, was like, you know what, you grew mushrooms 10 years ago. Why don't you grow these mushrooms and why don't you have an experience and see if that helps you? So I did. I grew some mushrooms. She helped. She, she babysat me and helped me facilitate a positive experience. And um, and yeah, man, it was uh, it was eye opening. You know, like we can talk. I'm happy to tell you more about the experience itself, but the main takeaway with psychedelic experiences is we don't realize how much we get locked into a particular set of um, uh, consciousness, a state of consciousness that we all carry with us in our day-to-day -day lives. And that can become very rigid. And that rigidity often can prevent you from imagining alternate paths or alternate ways of thinking. With a psychedelic experience, it's sort of does something in the brain that unlocks, it takes you out of that locked rigid framework that you in, you're, you're in and gives you a new way of experiencing human consciousness. And you come out of that with a completely shifted viewpoint of how you see the world. Because whereas before I did the psychedelics, I was in this very depressed, I'm stuck. I don't think I'll, I was beginning to feel hopeless. How do I, how am I ever going to get out of this position? I have no energy because depression just zaps you of energy. Um, I have no way of getting out of that. The psychedelic experience forces you to perceive the world in a different way. And you come out of it going, well, I know that there's another way of thinking about this because I experienced it in the trip. So I, I actually know, I, you know, I don't know what the future holds for me, but I know that it's not this locked in rigid viewpoint that I had before. I know that there's other opportunities. Um, so that's, a, that's also what gave me the comfort to kind of say, you know what, I'm going to go in, into genetic engineering. I'm going to teach myself it. I'm going to share that journey with the world and hopefully encourage other people to get connected and motivated with genetic engineering. And uh, I don't know where it's going to where it's going to end up, but I'm going to embrace it as the journey that it truly is and trust that if I stay committed to it, 
something incredible like being a guest on your podcast will uh, open up for me. Um, and that would not have been possible with, without having had that psychedelic trip because I was too much in a place where I needed to have all the pieces figured out. I needed to have a very clear cut plan to a destination. Um, the psychedelic experience gave me the, the flexibility to kind of go with the flow a little bit more. Just know that you're on a journey. You're not going to have it figured out. You're going to make mistakes along the way, but it's going to be okay. It's okay to not know the destination for the first time in your life. It's okay to actually just to see what happens. Gotcha, Josh. That's honestly, I've never done psychedelics myself. I'm not a drug person myself, but that's very interesting from like the viewpoint where I'm at and you were once were to where you are now. So it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, we talked about biotech and kind of like the basis of it. Can we move into genomics and like how genomics uh, varies from biotech and what the real difference is? They're, they're two very much related. You know, in the early days of, of biology, we didn't have access to um, cheap sequencing. We didn't have access to the data that, you know, it, what's incredible is at the heart of every organism that we know of on, the, on planet Earth, and as far as we know, we don't have any evidence of anything different in the universe, that all life is fundamentally DNA-based. That means somewhere deep into, its, uh, into the cells, there is a strand of nucleic acids, this DNA molecule, which is this incredible molecule. So whether it's fungus or a plant or a microbe or a human being, fundamentally, we all have this incredible molecule that's the same within us. The only difference is the individual nucleotides and the order that they're in. So genomics is really a matter of being able to sequence those, those long nucleotide uh, sequences from the DNA molecule and to be able to analyze them at scale. So I forget how big the human genome is, but I can tell you many of the, the fungal genomes, if you were to sequence the whole thing, they'd be about 40 million base pairs long. So if you think about what is a base pair, it's represented by one of the letters, A, P, G, or C. Imagine 40 million of those, and you have that in a database somewhere, and you can compare that between different fungal species. Well, genomics has allowed us to kind of look at those very large data sets of, of sequencing data and kind of find within those sequences, where's a gene that produces, you know, this cool protein? Um, what, there's different transcription factors and different things in, in, the, uh, in the DNA that we can, we can actually find by exploring and doing analysis on that genetic data. So genomics is very, inter, very much interrelated with biotech. Um, in fact, it's moving more into the software and data analytics side because the cost of sequencing has gotten so low, it's very cheap now to go out and collect a lot of different organisms to sequence them, to collect that data, put it in your data warehouse, run all sorts of analysis on it to look for new and interesting genes or um, molecular tools that we can take. And once we have it, once we've identified a gene from an organism that produces, say, you know, here, here's a gene that produces a protein that has antibiotic, uh, you know, uh, antibiotic uh, characteristics, we can then take that gene out and we can actually put that gene in other organisms that are really good at expressing uh, that gene. 
So we can actually move genes around between organisms and, and leverage the, the, what each individual organism has evolved to be really good at. For example, we talk about yeast. yeast. Yeast is used widely in biotech because it's very good at fermenting at large scale. You know, it's, it's very good at, you feed it sugar and it's, it's good at producing alcohol, but it turns out you can put other genes for producing medicine in the yeast, feed it sugar, and it will excrete the medicine at scale um, for very cheap. So that's, that's really uh, genomics and synthetic biology and genetic engineering are very tightly coupled. And right now there is a, a massive rush to sequence as many things as possible and to, to do the analytics to make new discoveries from that data. Yeah, Josh, as someone who's never studied genomics and biology, could you explain the process of gene editing? And could you also, kind of a follow-up to that, explain the technology that's used? So, you know, you mentioned CRISPR before and uh, other technologies. Could you also elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah. So the process of gene editing um, starts with you designing what DNA you want to go into the organism. And so th there's a, a way of actually finding genes. So I'll give you an example. There's a gene that comes from a jellyfish that's uh, called the green fluorescent protein, GFP. And this gene was discovered not too long ago. And the scientists who discovered it and isolated it from this jellyfish, you probably have seen bioluminescent jellyfish, at least seen pictures of it. Well, actually those jellyfish, they have this gene that produces this protein that happens to um, be uh, fluorescent under UV light. And so they isolated that gene, which again, is just a, a string of letters or a string of nucleotides. They were able to extract that gene out of that organism and put it into other organisms. So the gene editing process starts with identifying the genes, identifying a couple of the machinery that you need to tell the host organism to process that gene. If I just put a gene inside of an organism, it may not recognize that gene and it may not do anything with it. What I also need is a promoter, which tells the the machinery of the organism to process the gene and actually produce uh, the protein or express the protein that I'm trying to get it to express. And then a terminator, which is at the end of the gene, which tells it to stop producing it. So gene editing is really, the first step is really putting together your payload. And I do this because often what that payload looks like, it's called a plasmid. If you do a search, anyone listening, do a search for a DNA plasmid, you'll see these circular images that are representations of uh, genes and all of the machinery that's necessary for the host organism to actually express the genes in the plasmid. The next step is actually getting that DNA into the organism. So once I've kind of designed the DNA, I can actually hire a company to synthesize it and send it to me in a little vial. They'll send you a vial of the DNA, the genes that you kind of design, They'll send it to you for about 12 cents per base pair to give you a sense of, of cost. They'll synthesize it in a lab. They'll send you the DNA. And now the question is like, okay, I have this DNA in this little vial. How do I get it into the fungal cells? Like some that I have growing here. Well, for fungus, there's a lot of different techniques you can use. The technique I'm using is actually using something called agrobacteria. So what I'll actually do is I'll put that DNA into this special bacteria 
And then I'll put this bacteria with the fungal cells in the, this special bacteria has the ability to transfer some DNA to whatever organism it's in contact with. It almost infects it. So I will literally mix some of the, the agrobacteria with the fungus together, and it will transfer the DNA that I put into the bacteria. It will transfer some of that to the fungal cells for me. And then I just grow it out and uh, there's a few more steps, but that I'm using nature, I'm harnessing nature's own ability to do gene transfer to get DNA into the fungal cells. There's other, there's other less complicated ways. For example, I have a machine sitting behind me right here. This is called an electroporator. And all it does is it's, it's a glorified shocking machine. I have a little, it's a little plastic container called a cuvette that has two electrodes on each side. I could put human cells in there and I could put some DNA plasmid in there. And then I configure the machine to I set the voltage and a couple of other electrical settings and it will zap it. It'll send a very high voltage, very fast high voltage pulse through it. And what will happen is that DNA will actually go into this, the human cells or whatever cells, could be fungal cells, could be bacterial cells. The, back, the DNA will enter into the cell. The cell will recognize the DNA and it will start processing it like it does any other DNA. And that's pretty simplistic if you think about it. It's using a high shock, a high voltage shock to shock the DNA into the cells. That's used today in labs to do CRISPR experiments. CRISPR is really, they'll, they'll design a DNA plasmid, which has the CRISPR protein in it, uh, or Cas9 protein, and, uh, and their guide DNA, basically just their DNA, and they'll mix it with human cells, and they'll shock it, and, uh, and the DNA will go into the, and it'll go into some of the human cells, and then, um, that's it. They'll let the human cells grow. And some of those human cells are going to take up that DNA and start processing it uh, and express the genes that were put into it. Um, and in some cases with CRISPR, it might be that uh, it actually cut some of the DNA out of it or deactivated a gene or inserted a gene in, in a particular location. Um, and electroporation still is one of those things in biotech that no one really knows how it works, which is kind of interesting. There's a lot of theories about how how this machine works, but <clears throat> it just is a staple of, uh, of one of many ways of doing genetic engineering. And uh, yeah, so there's there's many different ways of doing it. You can shock the DNA into the cells. You can treat the cells where you basically put some um, chemicals in there, and it and it, uh, it loosens up the membrane, or 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 it like degrades the cell membrane so it's easier for the DNA to flow, flow through the cell walls into the organism. Uh, or you can use agrobacteria and you can harness nature's natural ability to transfect genes into an organism. To me, the most fascinating part of genomics is CRISPR, right? This new gene editing tool. At the basis of it, I mean, from my understanding, CRISPR arrays, right, basically allow bacteria to remember viruses. And that's can be really help, helpful in, in things like cancer research, where we know scientists have discovered, right, that changes in DNA essentially cause cancer. And we can use CRISPR uh, as a gene editing tool to, you know, help remedy that. And the cost of these technologies, I mean, you mentioned you're doing gene editing on, in, your, in your lab, and the cost of this has significantly gone down since 2003, 2004. 
for me, I'm really fascinated in, in the investing uh, part of genomics, right? I don't know if you're familiar with Kathy Wood. Uh, she's you know, obviously a very renowned hedge fund manager of ARK Invest, but she believes that genomics, and I agree with her, is going to completely change the world in the coming next five, 10 years. I mean, this is, this is not something long-term. I think, I think it's already here and it's starting soon. And so in the business aspect of it, you know, earlier you mentioned that uh, most startups fail, like most of them, like overwhelming majority fail. In this new field of genomics, you mentioned that a lot of, in biotech in general, a lot of people who are starting these companies are PhDs, right? Uh, who don't have maybe a business background. They understand the technology uh, and, and you know the nuances of it better, but because they don't have this financial understanding, maybe that's the reason why they can't get off the ground. In your mind, one, what do you see as the as the business model of, of genomic companies, and, and how how can startups you know uh, not make some of the same mistakes that previous startups in the space have made? Yeah, well, I. There's some things about what you asked that I'm not the expert in, so I'll talk generally kind of about just business and approaching startups, but also just about the market economics of biotech. If you have this technology, biotech and genomics, which is rapidly decreasing in its cost and the barriers to entry are being lowered, but the value that you get from it is, is going through the roof, then that's going to create a large demand for new biotech companies and new genomic companies. And accordingly, just like we saw in computer science over the last decade, what's going to happen is that's going to drive a large demand for the workforce. And so we are going, we are rapidly going to be approaching a phase, in my opinion, where you can't just say we're only going to fund startups that are founded by PhDs and masters. There's just not enough people to create all the companies that could exist out there. And so I think what we're gonna see is a shift to people that come from a variety of different backgrounds, bringing their expertise and knowledge from other industries into biotech. Genomics, for example, is a very computer science heavy field. There aren't a lot of differences from a pure software standpoint and a computer science standpoint. There aren't a lot of differences between working with large-scale genomic data and large-scale credit data or large-scale any kind of data. It just happens to be the underlying data is genomic data, not financial credit data, as an example. And so already we're starting to see a, a big overlap in the demand and the need for computer science skills and expertise in the field of genomics. You know, all the same rules though for a startup still apply. You still need to do the work of validating your idea of trying to be very close to your potential customers and understanding their needs so that you're developing your product so that there's a market demand for it. I would say, though, the one of the opportunities and part of what drives the work that I'm doing is that people are really naturally intuitive and creative and very good at solving problems at scale. If we could get people who, like myself, I don't have any biology degree. I don't come from a background in biology, but in the last year, I've taught myself genetic engineering. If we could get more people engaged at some level, Imagine the type of ideas that would come out of that. Imagine if we have someone who comes from the food industry and maybe they have this idea about genetically modifying uh, you know, yeast to produce something incredible that maybe mainstream institution and scientists kind of 
aren't looking at, they're not thinking about because they don't come from that perspective. They don't have that, that, uh, that viewpoint that this, these particular people do. That's where I think the potential opportunity comes from is, is being able to take these, the academic folks and the institutional players and partner with people like myself who are sort of the enthusiasts, the people who are looking at organisms from a different perspective and looking in places that maybe the big, the big players don't have an incentive to look at because it's maybe too small for them. Um, but it's very possible that I could go out, for example, collect a fungal species that is producing a new antibiotic that is incredibly valuable. You know, we have an antibiotic shortage right now in the world. And because, you know, nature is always evolving and any new antibiotics we introduce, as soon as we introduce them to the environment as a medicine, the environment is going to respond back by developing immunity to those antibiotics. So there's always this cat and mouse game. But if I, if people knew that you could potentially discover a new antibiotic just by going in your yard and collecting some fungus and learning how to isolate it, um, that's really powerful. It's almost, you're, you're almost crowdsourcing um, molecule discovery, antibiotic discovery, pharmaceutical discovery. So I think to kind of go back to the business aspect of it, there's going to be a need for increased people in the job force, especially people that have computer science backgrounds, but also, as you mentioned, people with business backgrounds. If you went and did a PhD, you know, and you're now starting a company, chances are you spent most of your time on the science side, not on the entrepreneurial side with how do I talk to investors? How do I find a customer? How do I even take an idea that I've incubated in the lab and scale it up to a business that could serve millions of potential customers? Those are all skills that require different side of the brain than someone who's been in a PhD learning molecular biology. Um, I am hearing though from people who are in their final, you know, who are in their PhD programs now that we're starting to see more schools incorporate the entrepreneurial training and startups within uh, their curriculum. You know, in my experience of business and working with startups, nothing beats the hands-on experience of actually going through the process of joining a startup. You know, when you're, when you join a startup, you're not doing one thing. You're going to be doing a hundred things. You'll probably also be the same person cleaning the bathrooms at the same time because who else is going to do it? Um, so you're doing a lot of different things. And so when, whenever you get into that realm, it's more about mindset and less about actual skills that you went to school for. It's more about embracing the idea that like uh, you're on a learning journey. You're going to be exposed to a lot of different things. You kind of need to develop a lot of different skills to be a good startup founder. You have to know the science, but you also need to know the business. You have to have good, you know, interpersonal relationship skills, the ability to build relationships with customers, with investors. There's a lot of different things you need to know. Um, so for people who are, you know, wanting to get into biotech, yeah, the same advice I would give to anybody who's interested in starting a tech startup is join another startup, do it for a year. Um, and I mean, a, er, the earlier, the better. Um, it's a very highly risky venture, but you're going to learn more in that six months or a year than you probably got in your entire PhD just from the hands-on experience of, you know, there's a lot on the line when you have a startup. You have potentially have employees, you potentially have investor money, and um, you have your reputation. 
you really want this this thing to succeed. Um, and so there's there's no other experience that that meets the real world um, experience of of joining a startup and going through that journey. Now, to me, the the world of technology uh, it's fascinating how the democratization of things has replicated into different fields of technology, specifically for genomics. And I think, uh, as someone who you know who follows uh, this space, the investing side of the space, it makes me optimistic. You know, seeing that you yourself has started to you know do gene editing in your own lab, and, and that's just going to continue to accelerate. And I think the business community of Wall Street should, should really catch up to that because, I mean, besides Kathy Wood, who manages uh, the hedge fund ARK Invest, you know, she invests in disruptive innovation and she has an ETF based solely for the genomics field. I feel like a lot of Wall Street firms are, are, are catching up to investing in disruptive innovation, specifically in the genomics field. Yeah, I agree with that. I will play devil's advocate, though, and say that if I'm an investor and I have someone that says they genetically modified an organism in their home and now they want to start a business, that would seem a little bit riskier to me because you're dealing with something that is a little bit outside of the norms of what I'm used to investing in, you know, because because I don't have those letters attached to my name because I didn't go through formalized training. I'm self-taught now. There are pros and cons to that. If someone approached me and were like, look, I spent the last year self-teaching myself genetic engineering, and here are, here's irrefutable evidence that I was successful at doing it in my home lab, that would mean a lot to me. I, I personally would have appreciation for that because that's the journey that I'm on. But I can also understand how the investment community, the business community, who are accustomed to working with PhDs that follow this very rigid pathway that's sort of been created for them to create businesses. I could see how that would be a little scary. It's it's uncharted territory. So I think, you know, with anything where you're disrupting, the first few people to do it always have to overcome these really big challenges. And um, so that's what I'm dedicated to doing is kind of showing that it can be done. And then just like the people before me who kind of encouraged me, just the, the various people on YouTube and people in the biotech community who showed me that there were things you could do from home that I didn't know were possible. I'm hoping that my journey will inspire others as well to kind of go, well, if he could, if he did it with fungus, I could do it with plants, or I could also do it with fungus and take what he did to the next level. You know, I'm showing that those boundaries can be broken. And hopefully that creates an avalanche. In a perfect world, what I would love to see is more startups where there's a blending of startup founders, some that have the PhD, some that don't, and have those startups leverage each other's strengths because that's where you get some really exciting uh, backgrounds. You have a real estate, you know, Matt has a, it come, has a real estate background. Who knows what sort of ideas he's going to have from that perspective? They're, you know, they're, I can make connections immediately between real estate and biology. And uh, him bringing that into a biotech, it might seem at surface to be completely not related, but actually he's going to have a lot of ideas that he's formed from his own life experiences that will inform how that business is run. In fact, he might be the great uh, CEO, chief operating officer, um, or the person that manages the investments, or the person that talks to potential pharmaceutical companies who who want to leverage this technology because there's a lot of interpersonal interaction in real estate um, and not a lot of analysis. He's on commercial side, so he's, he's doing a lot of underwriting of deals. So there's a lot of overlap between those particular skills 
and the skills necessary to run a business. So I think what we'll see, and I think what a, a savvy investor will begin to notice is, you know what, I'm not looking for just a, to invest in a purely scientific endeavor where all the founders are just pure scientists. There's actually a lot of risk baked into there. Yes, they have the PhD. There's no doubt that they're smart, but they, they don't necessarily know business. They don't necessarily know how to scale that business. Do they know how to hire people? Are they only going to be myopic in their point of view in terms of only hiring other scientists? What about, you know, what about a self-taught computer science, self-taught software engineer who's an amazing coder who would love to get hands-on with genomics? Are they going to pass over that person because they don't have a PhD? So I think what we'll see, and I think what investors will tap into is like, they want to see the whole picture. They want to see a well-rounded company that addresses a lot of the risk areas in starting a new business. And uh, that's where I see a lot of potential in the business arena. Yeah, you know, to me, it seems like just computers all over again, like, you know, in the early days, computers were only accessible to like PhD, uh, you know, and uh, just, uh, more academic uh, folks. And then, you know, now we can make a website at your home, just sitting at home. And it seems like that same trend in biotech. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's what's funny is, and I'm glad you caught on that. I, I've talked to a lot of people who go, no, 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 it's not the same. Biology is so, so much less predictable it's so less, it's, it's not as discreet as computer science. And there's some truth to that. When you're working with organisms, there are things about them that are um, very difficult to understand and not predictable. And you can run an experiment and it's not like computer science where it's like, it does exactly what you code it to do. There are things about biology where you tell it to do something and you get a completely unexpected result. It's unpredictable, yeah. It's unpredictable. That said, there are we are moving into a field and an area where the predictability is rapidly going up because the more that we study these organisms, the more that we do genomics and we understand the, the nature of DNA, the more we're able to understand um, exactly how it works and we're able to, to get it to do the things that we want it to do. So absolutely, I think we are in the early days of it getting to a point where computer science was, where you needed to have a highly specialized skills and training. You needed to have a lot of money because computers were expensive. Now, the cost of sequencing has, has gotten incredibly cheap and the computing already is super, super cheap. And we're now we're even seeing the actual hands-on biology I'm noticing is even becoming automated in the sense that if you, nowadays, you can design an experiment on a computer using genomics, you can have a software engineer design all of these biological genetic engineering experiments, and they can use an API to send it to a company in the cloud that will use robots and run the experiment on the organisms remotely. And now I don't even need to have a lab. I can just, from my house, write some code, design my genetic experiments, choose the organism, choose how, like, choose programmatically how the experiment should be run, send all that through this API. This company that has a, a highly automated robotic, robotic lab will run my experiment, will take all the data, will publish it back through the API. Now I'm just sitting at home running these biological experiments purely from a computer. That's, that's kind of where we're headed in, uh, in biology. So I like that statement. As predictability goes up, it's more and more safe to do it, right? We take a look at like GMOs. 
And, you know, that's a big thing going on. And what I, from my understanding is people don't really understand that it's actually a good thing. Like if they took a look at a banana before GMOs hit it, you know, they wouldn't have eaten that. If they took a look at corn before GMOs hit it, they definitely wouldn't have eaten that. And so my question to you is like, as time goes on and like we chug along and we take a look like at Dolly, the sheep, and I, I believe Zong Zong and Hua, uh, the two monkeys in China, uh, how how far do we go? Like, where is the line cut? Where do you think that ethical line should be placed? Well, I'll start with the first part of your question. That is a fantastic question and something that I think about as well. So the first part of that question is people have a natural fear of the word genetic and consuming things that have been genetically modified, but that fear doesn't always come from, fear is an emotion. It's not a rational thought. It comes from a different part of the brain, which is feelings as opposed to rationality. So what we have to do to overcome that inherent fear, like with anything is we have to educate people because people don't know what genetic modification is. And so if you don't know what it is and you know that it's very powerful and you know that it could have big implications on your health, then yeah, you should fear it. Um, but we can turn that fear into a respect. And we do that with knowledge. And so what people don't understand is we've been genetically modifying organisms since the beginning of mankind. We do it through selective breeding. You know, we do that by going, this piece of corn grew bigger and faster than this one. So I'm going to breed that one more than this one. That over time creates genetic modification to this corn instead of this one. What we're now talking about is we're going to not go through selective breeding, but we're going to use molecular tools in a lab to do that, to speed up the, the pace of genetic modification. And so just because you're doing it a little bit differently doesn't mean it's worse. The question is, what is the genetic modification that you're making? That should be the question that people are asking to decide whether or not they should be fearful of it, if they should put a halt to it, or, they, or if they should embrace it. Because yeah, you can GMO something that's incredibly dangerous and pathogenic and could kill someone. Or you could genetically modify a potato to last drought conditions and prevent famine. So those are two very different use cases, but one of them is saved millions of people's lives over a millennia, um, and the other one could be used as a weapon. So that's to, hopefully that answers the first part of the question around fear. We have to educate people and get people uh, you know, asking, what, what does it mean for something to be genetically modified? Just because something is GMO doesn't mean it's inherently negative or bad. Um, the second part of your question was around, how do we define what those limits are? And um, that is a great question. So. I will say, I don't know the answer to that. I don't, I don't think a lot of people do because we're in uncharted territory. I am showing, you know, there's, there are people who are naturally apprehensive and fearful of what I'm doing. I am doing genetic manipulation of an organism in my lab under no supervision. I'm, I'm accountable to no one. Could I engineer this fungus to be pathogenic to humans and maybe cause disease in humans. And then all I have to do with this fungus is release it out into the wild, put it near a plant or put it somewhere where it can grow and it will grow and spread. And now I've introduced a GMO fungus with unintended consequences out into the environment. That is a possibility. That is a possibility. And I think we should have some limits around that. Even though I'm doing it and I'm not planning to do any of those things, not everybody's me and you guys don't know me. The general public doesn't know me. How do you know that I don't have bad intentions? So we need to have some guardrails. 
<clears throat> I'm not advocating that we uh, we be the wild wild west and people do whatever it is that they they want to do. <clears throat> that said, I don't work with anything human, um, not because I can't. Um, I could, you know, I could be running CRISPR experiments here, which is pretty cool, and I would love to show people to do that. But I think it's too controversial, and I, my intention is not to push the ethical boundaries of and and to try to. <clears throat> break any ethical boundaries or push them or to make people feel uncomfortable. Um, I have a completely different set of goals and aims. I'm trying to do things safely. And, um, but the question still stands, could I? Yes, I could. In fact, there's, there, there probably are people right now who are crispering human cells to do all kinds of things, maybe solve diseases, or maybe as the technology becomes more abstracted and easier to use and there becomes the, the cost of entry is lower you're going to have someone that just wants to see the world burn right you're going to have you're always going to have people out there who are like oh i have this incredible power look how easy it is for me to put this viral gene into uh, into this into the human genome and infect people you know let me try it because there's some kind of like power that they get from it yes i mean that that's a that's a real uh, concern. I will say though, like where the technology is at is not so easy yet that you're going to have someone has to be very motivated to to learn all the things and to do that. So if it was going to happen, it's more likely it's going to happen from an existing lab or someone who's in a lab that has that knowledge already and access to the tools uh, to do it. Which we are all living in a world where that may be a reality with COVID. Maybe we don't we don't know yet. That's something to to be explored. Um, so, you know, there, uh, you go back to the basics. I kind of believe in the golden rule. I wouldn't want to work on anything that I wouldn't want to be exposed to, or I wouldn't want other people to be exposed to, but it's a really good question is what are those ethical and philosophical boundaries to set and what laws should we construct to keep it safe, but to not slow down innovation because there are other countries in this world that have none of those ethical concerns that we in the United States are constantly debating and philosophizing about. Meanwhile, there are other actors in the, in the world that are moving forward, um, full steam ahead, putting very little concern about the long-term implications of the, the research that they're doing and the potential harm that they may do to the globe. And the only way we're going to be able to counter that is not to put our heads in the sand and say, no one should be doing this research. We have to be doing this research. We have to be defining what that line is so that we can hold other people accountable. Um, and we should be doing it in a way that's smart, that allows us to continue to innovate, but keeps it safe. And so there's always going to be a tension between making it, you know, it's like regulation in general it's not bad in and of itself. It's meant to protect us and it's meant to protect one another. Too much regulation though can stifle business, can stifle innovation and can slow it down. So we're always in a, a tension in life and in society between how much constraint do we put around something to keep it safe and to protect people and how much do we allow the freedom to explore and to innovate and to experiment um, and there's trade-offs with both sides. 
So we're, we're going to constantly be in a tension between those two worlds. Um, and that's just, that's just life. We, we have to work through those, but we can't ignore it. And, um, and I, I think we're not quite at a point where we're giving it enough attention and we're, we're not having enough of the conversation and debates around the potential uh, side effects and harms of, of not allowing or allowing genetic modification. It could very well be in the next five years, once more people like myself are publishing their research to the public and showing how easy it is to genetically modify organisms in your home, it could be that that's illegal in the next three years. I hope it's not, I hope it's not, but it could be. And um, we'll see, well, that's, that's part of the journey here is it, with any new technology. You know, when Uber and Lyft first started, they were operating outside the legal boundaries. That had never been done before. We had only ever had licensed cab drivers that were driving people around. And so sometimes when, when you're innovating or disrupting, you are entering into a gray area legally because it's unexplored territory. We, we never had to deal with an Uber or Lyft type situation before. So we had no case law for it. We had no philosophy. We had no, you know, we had, we had to figure all of those things out as we go. That's just the nature of te technological advancement though. Right. That is very, like, it's very interesting because we know, you know, we go on and just as you said, this is not a linear path. You know, different nations are doing different things. They have different ethic, ethical boundaries regarding, you know, genomics and how we play about, play about this. So how would you say, how, how do we correlate things? Because obviously countries don't care what another country does. And some countries do care what another country does. Right. And it, that just, it goes hand in hand. And, you know, say as an example, um, just say the U.S., we're very stringent about these things, right? But China, on the other hand, is not. And so how do we go ahead and, like, communicate with one another and, you know, try to draw that connection so that scientists are on that one-to-one -one basis? Yeah, you know, there is something special about science and history where scientists have transcended uh, political and international boundaries to cooperate with one another in the entrance in the interest of scientific endeavors. And I love that, right? Because anything that interconnects us as people, science and knowledge is always one of those things will transcend our differences, our cultural differences, because we're both just trying to understand the world that we live in. And we saw this with, with Einstein interacting with scientists uh, across seas, to try to stop nuclear proliferation, for example. Um, so, you know, I would like to see more international collaboration with folks in China. And I think it does happen. It definitely does happen. We also have to trust but verify. China is a country with a proven track record of keeping secrets. Russia is also one of those countries. And the US has secrets too. We're all keeping certain things away from each other and we have competing interests in that, in that regard. And there are certain times in, um, in history where the tension is going to be so high, it's not enough, it's too much to overcome for two independent scientists to work behind the scenes. So, you know, I think the best thing that we can do as Americans in America is to invest in our own research and so that we are not only innovating and creating new medicines and new technologies here, but we need to be able to protect ourselves should we have a bad actor deploy something on our country as well. So we, we need to 
be investing and advancing our, our own um, sciences forward, but always extending an olive branch for collaboration with our fellow humans that are all, whatever part of the world, they're also um, scientifically endeavor, you know, they're, they're pursuing scientific endeavors, but we have to do it intelligently. You know, there's just, this is one of those things when you talk about genetic engineering, you're talking about the mechanics of life. If you make a mistake and you say design the wrong virus for whatever reason, and there are some valid reasons for studying viruses and doing what's called gainer research, you might've heard that in recent uh, uh, vernacular, political vernacular, but there are valid reasons to do gainer function research. We need to know what makes a virus deadly to human beings. We need to study that because we need to be able to create a cure for it. Um, but that it has a lot of risk, very high, highly elevated risk associated with doing that kind of study. Should How much of that collaboration on that particular project should we be doing with another country that may not have the same interest, that may have an interest in actually undermining us for whatever reason? So those are the questions we should be answering. We should be very careful about that. So I don't think, it's like most things in life. There's no black and white answer to this. It's nuanced. It's very individualized on a case-by-case -case basis. We need to be paying attention to it. We need to have checks and balances in place. We should be encouraging collaboration. That's always much better than isolating ourselves off from other countries and other people. Um, but we should also be mindful of they are their own country. They are loyal to that country and that culture, just like we are. We should protect ourselves, just as they, I'm sure that they are as well. They're, you know, it's a very nuanced way. I don't think there's a blanket way that we'll be able to solve these very challenging um, predicaments, especially with when you talk about working with biology or potentially biological weapons, and even things that may not be intentionally biological weapons. There are a number of cases where a genetically modified organism has been released into the wild with negative consequences. And it was, you know, not intentional necessarily, uh, but it happened. So it's very powerful. And I think that's probably why so many people have a natural instinct towards fear because it is very, very powerful. If you can master the, the molecule that controls all of life, well, that, that's, that's a whole level of mastery over life than we've ever had in history before. So right. that's pretty, that's pretty incredible. I think, I think with any technology, you know, there's, there's, there's positives and there's a downside to it. You know, in the yes. 1990s, Janish was talking about how uh, computers weren't accessible to a, a lot of people. And we all thought, um, you know, they were just not accessible. And in the beginning phases of the digital revolution, it was really positive and we didn't really see you know, the, the, the spread of disinformation that now happens on social media and the downside of what the internet can produce. And similar with genomics, I think there's a positive side to it in terms of, you know, helping people, uh, you know, cure diseases, honestly, and, and improve lives on, on a health level. But on the downside, countries can use this as a way of bio, you know, use biotech as a way of terrorism, right? Releasing pathogens, creating, uh, or, or rather forcing onto uh, pandemics and using that as a way of bio warfare. I think that's a possibility as, as countries have different, you know, uh, priorities. Or it could be an accident and they just don't want to exactly. tell anyone because they don't want it to look bad on the, on the country as well. 
Well, that's equally as dangerous because the end result is the same. I agree. And since you brought up this point, I, I, I want to ask, and I think you can provide a valuable perspective on this. COVID was obviously, you know, one of the most consequential things that ever happened in the world since the 1920 pandemic. Um, now there's a new theory that's that's out there. In the beginning, this this started off as a conspiracy theory, right? That this was a lab leak. This was created in Wuhan. And, and now, uh, you know, there's been a lot of good journalism made, and now we have more information. And so I want to provide some context. So the Wuhan Institute of Virology has been studying, uh, you know, coronaviruses for years because that is really endemic to that region, that coronaviruses. And there is a theory that perhaps researchers there were studying this and, and accidentally it leaked out and China tried to cover it up. Since you worked in a lab before, what are the chances that this, this you know, has some veracity to it? Uh, certainly it's, it, you know, it, all the politics aside, I think it's, uh, it's possible that this happens, very much possible. I mean, we can't really trust uh, what China plans on doing, in my opinion. But if you want to provide some perspective on this, what's your- Yeah, opinion? no, I, I love it. Hopefully it doesn't get you banned from YouTube <laughs> and even have the conversation. Uh, your vaccine hesitancy score is, is rising. Now, uh, yeah, unfortunately, this is one of those topics that used to not be politicized. We've, this isn't the first pandemic we've had. We've had other pandemics. We had SARS um, during the Obama administration. It wasn't nearly as politicized, but- there were a lot of things in our in American culture in the last four years that have led to a highly polarized society. That's not a shock to anybody. I mean, everybody knows that. And so everything became politicized. And that's a danger to all of us, regardless of what side you're on, for everything to be viewed through the, through the viewpoint of politics, incredibly dangerous because you lose objectivity. You lose the ability to just look at the data in front of you and to trust it. Um, you can't do that anymore. It's actually very, very difficult to discern fact from fiction on anything COVID today because there are so many competing interests around the board. I can find 10 studies that say masks work. I can find 10 studies that say they don't work. I can find emails from Dr. Fauci that say they don't work and some that say they do work. So what's true and what's fiction? Very, very difficult these days. We are inundated with information. That said, the information that I've seen about the lab leak theory, it's all circumstantial. We don't have anything definitive yet. So in the court of law, that wouldn't go as far as something definitive. But I do believe in Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is usually the best. We have a lab in China, in Wuhan, that was studying novel coronaviruses. We have the first two people that got infected were from that lab in November. Um, there are a lot of things about the circumstances that point to it was probably a lab leak. I could be wrong about that. We need, to, we need to do that research and we need to figure out the truth. We've not found a host animal yet. That's not entirely odd. We haven't found a host animal for a lot of pandemics. So that, you know, use that information for what you will. Is it a possibility? Yes. Do I think that there's more circumstantial evidence pointing to it towards a lab leak? Viruses are incredibly small. They're very, very small. They're a little bit bigger than DNA. It's very easy for those things to hop on a surface and get outside of a lab environment. So I think it's entirely possible. I don't know that I see anything that says it was intentional, but I do think it's possible that 
because China doesn't have as strict, they don't have the shared values and ethics and um, the, we, we operate independently, we operate differently. I do think it's possible that it leaked. I do think it's possible that they had an incentive to not share that with the world for, for you can imagine how embarrassing that would be, how poorly that would reflect on the scientific community. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. I absolutely think it's possible. I, I can't say one way or the other. I definitely think we should know, and I definitely think we should research it. Screw the politics. We need to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. And if it, if it turns out that we did fund research, which it looks like we, the NIH did fund some of the research going into gain-of-function research in the Wuhan lab, well, we should know that and so that the American citizens can decide where we want to invest that money in the future. We have 11 labs, I think, in the United States doing similar research. Maybe for a period of time, we need to redirect those funds back to American labs while we put in safeguards and precautions to make sure that we, if we are going to fund a lab in China, one that's known to potentially leak viruses, we need to make sure we hold them accountable for that, that we put in the proper safeguards or precautions so that we can continue collaborating with them again in the future and something like this doesn't happen again. And then in general, you know, we should always be doing a reassessment of gain of function type research where we're, we're taking viruses and we're making them more dangerous in a lab. Naturally, people, people, and I understand, people say we shouldn't be doing that at all. Well, in a perfect world, we wouldn't need to have any nuclear weapons, you know, but we, we're, we don't live in a utopia. We, as long as there are other countries that are pointing their nuclear weapons at us, we have to protect ourselves. There's no way around that. I'd love to say that we could just stop doing these, this dangerous kind of research or not have to have any weapons to protect ourselves, but we, it's just human nature, you know, we're imperfect beings. And uh, we're always in conflict with one another. We're in conflict with ourselves and that manifests in a, in a larger context. So I don't know if that answered your question, but uh, right. yes, I do think it's possible. I do think there's a lot of circumstantial evidence pointing to a lab leak. I do think we should investigate it. I think we should remove the politics. That's not gonna happen, but I think in a perfect world, we should remove politics from that. That's something that, in, that transcends politics. We're talking about a deadly, virus that potentially escaped out of a lab, which is preventable. And regardless of your Democrat or Republican, you're equally exposed to that kind of a danger. And we should all have a shared interest in coming together and making sure it doesn't happen again. Right. Well, I, I agree with you, Josh, in that NIH was a short for Na the National Institute of Health headed by Dr. Fauci probably had good intentions. I mean, I'm sure they absolutely they fund research all over the world. But what a lot why I think this has gotten politicized is um, a lot of people in the media, you know, have idolized Dr. Fauci and NIH. And, and so a lot of journalists have actually, you know, restrained themselves from questioning uh, some of the science that's happened. I mean, not questioning the science of it, but the objectives, the public policy impacts of some of the scientific decisions. And so I agree with you that this, this, this probably, you know, obviously that you said there's not enough circumstantial evidence, but maybe that this, this was something that you know the Wuhan Institute of Virology was just studying, and like you said, viruses are so small; it's so easy for them to like you know uh, spread, and it doesn't need to be start with a lot of people. You can start with one person and literally replicate. Uh, and again, I don't know the the the, the demographic concentration of how the Wuhan 
you know, the Wuhan province, I don't know if it's a province or not, it's probably a city, but I don't know, you know, how condensed people live together. So that that's probably something that I, I guess impacted this. But in general, how do we prevent this from happening? I mean, you've worked in a lab before, right? I mean, this is- scary. I haven't. I haven't worked in a lab before. <laughs> you have not worked in a lab, but you, you know, if, how, how do we prevent this from happening? I mean, viruses are small. Like, so scientifically it's, this, this is going to happen in the future. I mean, I, I feel like this is, as the world becomes more globalized, this is just the beginning of pandemics. It's only going to get worse from here. I mean, COVID-19, we're lucky. It wasn't like Ebola or, or you know, some of the other uh, things that, that were worse. So how do we prevent this from happening again? That's like my yeah. last question to you. Well, man, that is a, that's a tough question. And there's, there's intuitively, I agree with you. I think that we're in the, we're at the beginning stages of a new, phase in technology, and we're probably going to see more biological mishaps occur. It's sort of like, and going back to using nuclear weapons, when nukes became available, there's this amazing map. It's an animated map of the globe that it takes you through. It shows you all the nuclear bombs that have been exploded over like a course of 50 years. I don't know if you guys have seen that before, but yeah, it's pretty I have cool. Seen that and it's actually insane. I actually was, my professor showed up in one of my classes and it's so like, I don't know, it's kind of mesmerizing to look at, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. And you see in the beginning, it was like one bleep in, in the United States, one bleep in Russia, then a little bit more, then a little bit more. And then in the 40s and 50s, it was bombs going off all over. And then you start to see Pakistan and Iran, they got nukes. And then you start to see the UK, they got nukes. And you start seeing flashes there. And then Africa, and then Australia, and then the Pacific Islands. And then it started to calm down. It started to go back and, and recede. And now we haven't had uh, a nuclear bomb explosion for quite a while. So I think, you know, how did we get to that point? It's, that's a it, that was that's a tough thing to answer. We had to use them in war. We had to we a lot of people died from nuclear weapons. Um, we had to go through the Cold War. We had to go through a lot of experiences to finally agree as a as a humanity to put some restrictions and limitations on the amount of nuclear research that we do and the amount of nuclear weapons that we stockpile. And so I think that we're likely headed in a sort of a similar fashion when it comes to biotechnological uh, research is that we are going to have to, as an international community, come together and agree on holding each other accountable, agree on oversight, and agree on harsh penalties for breaking uh, those international agreed upon laws that we set uh, for the kind of research we do and for mistakes, intentional or not, that happen. Uh, because I would argue the stakes for biological mishaps, the stakes are much higher than with nuclear weapons. They're not localized like a nuclear weapon is. It can easily traverse the globe and infect everybody uh, in a short amount of time. I will also just say that in the United States, if we do not find a way to come together as a country and overcome our political differences, that will be the downfall of our great country because we need to be cooperating with one another in order to unify on this particular topic 
and to work together to prevent this. This is not something that should be politicized. This is talking about human health and welfare. That, it, that transcends your political differences. Unfortunately, we're going through a lot of different things at the same time. Journalism is changing. Mainstream journalism is no one trusts it anymore. And so you have independent journalists out there. Everybody has competing interests. You, as you mentioned before, you have journalists that don't want to report certain things because they don't align with a political narrative that they're trying to push. And that happens all over the place. And just and also the access to information is so overwhelming. We're not evolved to consume as much information. And so we have so much information. It is impossible for the typical person to di differentiate what's fact from fiction anymore. Even scientific, I would say even the politicization has infiltrated the academic research institutions as well, because you see papers that have a political lean to them to, to, to push a particular um, certain ideology in their in their in their publications, and that sours all of scientific research because you're you're no longer being objective. That's not what science is about. Science is saying we've observed this thing, we hypothesize it might be because of X, but we welcome you to challenge it with your own evidence and your own objections. Let's work together, putting our observations together to try to figure out what reality is and define it. It's not a game of uh, I'm right and you're wrong. You have to you have to prove it one way or the other. It's a, it's very much a collaboration, and our understanding of science and nature is constantly unfolding because we are advancing at our technology constantly, and that opens new pathways for us to observe and discover new things. I think that's a really important point that that, that you know. Um, We've covered political polarization on this podcast a lot of times before, and again, with this specific topic, I feel like, like you said, we shouldn't let our politics get into the objectivity of science because there's actually lives on the line. I mean, I feel like that was, you know, that's why the pandemic got exacerbated because, you know, certain politicians let their ego get in the way and, you know, politicize the actual science of it, and unfortunately, you know, the whole world is kind of bearing the consequences and we probably will bear the economic consequences for, you know, the foreseeable future. But uh, it was a really interesting conversation, Josh. We really value your perspective on this. Uh, and I think genomics is such uh, a disruptive innovation force that it's only going to get better. There's going to be so many more people like you, you know, who are going to examine these things in, in the spaces of their own homes. And that's a positive uh you know, in the short term, and as a society, we need to constantly, you know, evaluate um, the ethical boundaries for, for this new technology. Absolutely, man. It's pl a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, and where Thank can you, Josh. Find, where can people find you? Uh, make sure to plug your, your link here. The main place is Instagram. Check out Everyman Bio, Everyman Bio on Instagram, but also you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'll, I'll connect with anybody, Josh McGinnis, look for me on LinkedIn, and then everymanbio.com on YouTube, Instagram, all the platforms, so. Sounds good. Hey man, uh, best of luck to you and we'll make sure to plug your information in our, in our description as well. Thank you for your so much. Sounds good. Bye guys. Josh. All right, take See care. ya.